Uh, but the second half of the year, we've seen you know a lot you know many many consultants have been at a at a high utilization rate as I think there's a growing acceptance of of using independent consultants to get the work done. Hey friend, it's David Nabinsky here in New York City. Are you interested in becoming an independent management consultant? This episode will help you do so. In 2008, Will Bachman left McKinsey, one of the world's most renowned management consulting firms, to start his own independent management consulting practice. Through doing the work and building relationships and friends and ultimately a community, in 2015, Will co-founded Umbrex to help other independent management consultants connect with each other, learn from each other, and also uh, even work on projects together. Will has recently produced a new course called Setting Up Your Consulting Practice. The course and so much information about Umbrex, Will's podcast called Unleashed, a 340-episode show on how to thrive as an independent professional can be found at umbrex.com. In this episode, you'll learn about all of these mentioned things, consulting, becoming remarkable, becoming known, Will's famous Clark framework, how Will thinks about a five-decade time horizon for his professional career, and how you may think about it as well. So if you're interested in becoming an independent consultant, independent management consulting, setting up your practice, this episode is for you. As always, this episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There, you can also subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which has the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Will. Uh, Will, welcome to the show. David, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So well, I got I to gotta start off and just, I'm curious, do you think everybody could be an independent freelance consultant professional? Uh, no, I don't. Um, so uh, I'd say to be successful as an independent professional, um, I think more people should think about it, but not everybody should be doing it uh, because it does require two skills that are almost orthogonal or right angle. One, you have to be able to you know, do the work, the thing that it is that you do, but you also have to have a bit of hustle or ability to generate the work um, and ability to kind of sell the work. And not everybody loves that second piece. So I think you know, people who are thinking about going into the independent world should realize it's not just about being a good consultant, graphic designer, writer, you know, whatever, but also someone who's good at hustling, getting to know people, building relationships over the long term, and all that other stuff in order to earn a living. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, well, obviously, when I want to talk about Umbrex, the community that you built and, and the podcast and, and all the work related to this. Uh, but another kind of high level question that I'm fascinated about uh, through reading some of your work was around this concept of a uh, a five-decade career uh, and really kind of taking the long-term view towards things. Would love to just kind of hear uh, some some quick thoughts about that. Sure, David. Thanks for asking about that. So the phrase that I like to use is having a five-decade time horizon to your career and your personal and professional relationships. So it's not quite an infinite game like the book by, I think, Simon Kars, 
um, but it's uh, Simon Sinek, but it's, it's certainly the, the long game. So when I hear sort of corporate leaders being praised for taking a long-term time perspective and they're talking about a five-year perspective, that seems to me much too short. Um, and if you think about your career with a five-decade time horizon, it changes the types of investments you're willing to make because the payoffs from those investments can occur much further in the future. So you can be making investments in relationships that may not pay off in the next quarter or the next five years even. You can make investments in building skills that take a long time to develop. You can invest in building your personal brand and your thought leadership over a long time. So if you're thinking about five decades rather than the next five months or the next five years, then you're just more inclined to make investments that uh, take a long time to build, but that have the sorts of investments that have compound interest. And can you speak to an example of maybe something that you said, you know what, this feels too short term, or you know what, this would be good for 20 years, 30 years. Anything that stands out to you, Will? Sure. So, uh, I mean, just one that just comes to mind, right, off the top of my head. Not too long ago, I was asked by the local Phi Beta Kappa Council to give a talk to uh, their, you know, recent graduates, the recent inductees on, you know, uh, how to find a job and career planning, right? So a bunch of, you know, 22-year-old recent graduates, uh, which, which was, it was super fun to do. And I, I happily, you know, took some time to think about it and then kind of to go to that evening. But, you know, none of those individuals are going to, you know, give me personally any immediate, like, return, right? They're not going to, uh, in terms of, you know, strict kind of uh, business value for me. Uh, but it was fun to do. And I worked on building relationships with, with some of those young graduates. And uh, this was about a year ago. And one of them just reached out to me and says, hey, thanks for that advice a year and a half ago. Uh, it actually helped me find a job. So that was rewarding. And, you know, you never know when you're connecting with someone how it's going to pay off. Uh, I'd say another thing that everyone can do is, particularly people that are looking for a new job or between jobs, investing in, in those folks and helping them, offering to make a connection, offering to look at their resume, offering to you know, give feedback on their LinkedIn profile, uh, making introductions where you can. Those people that aren't currently in a position to help you out are going to be grateful at some point in the future. And, you know, it may not be next week, but at some point, someone may, may appreciate that. Um, the other kind of side to that is thinking about more of a portfolio. So making investments in relationships where not every single relationship has to pay off, right? But if you have a portfolio of those investments that, you know, one out of a hundred may, you know, be someone become in a position where they can you know, bring you a lot of work or, or help your career, help your business. Um, you don't have to have every single one of those pay off. So th those are just a couple examples. And, and on the portfolio approach, clearly I'm interested in that, hence the name of the podcast, Portfolio Career Podcast. Uh, any other yeah. examples where you've kind of taken a portfolio view on some, uh, some of your work, whether with clients or skills, anything else that kind of yeah. jumps out? Yeah, so let me also talk, I just sent a note out to members of Umbrex talking about to set a goal of getting bad at something 
in 2021, okay? And the idea behind this is think about chess, okay? And think about your level of mastery in chess on a scale of zero to 10. If you have never played chess and you don't know the rules of chess, you're a level zero. You're not even bad at chess, right? You're not even bad. Whereas if you spend just one weekend with a tutor, let's say you spend one concentrated weekend with a tutor where you learn the rules of chess and you play 15 or 20 games, right? Now you're level one, you're bad at chess, but you're good enough that you can enjoy it. You have some sense, some sense of what people are talking about when, uh, of what it might feel like to get really good of what it might be like to study for years and years and become a grandmaster. You have like an infinite, infinite times more insight into the world of chess than you did when you were a level zero. So that first bit of getting bad at something, uh, it's a relatively small amount of effort, but it's this huge payback versus going from level four to level five takes a lot more work and has marginally not as much incremental value. Um, so in my own life, I like to work at get, getting bad at things. Uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, 10 years ago on a family trip to Lima, Peru, um, my, my wife uh, was born in Peru and her uncle, Waldi Pedrasa, is a relatively well-known musician in Lima. Uh, he's never had his own uh, record produced though. So when we went 10 years ago, I rented a music studio for the day, hired a professional music studio. Waldi brought his wife, Carmen Portugal and some, some musician friends and they recorded an album. And it was the most amazing experience for us. I mean, I had never been a music producer. I had never been inside a studio myself. So we saw this whole process from beginning to end of, you know, all the people sitting in the different rooms, soundproofed and what it's like to record it and do multiple tracks and adjust it. And then at the end, we had the music master produced um, and I published it. You can find it on Spotify. If you look for Recuerdo, Waldi Pedrasa, you can find that album. So it was this, I am now a bad at producing an album, right? But I have some sense of what it's like to organize the musicians, to get the studio time, to, to manage it and figuring out how to get it available in the universe. So I would say people should do more of that. Some things, yes, you should pursue mastery, but also pursue, uh, pursue things where you're gonna get enough of an experience with it that now you have some feel for what that whole space is like. I love that. And uh, I mean, I can imagine my first podcast episode was not that great. <laughs> uh, and I said, you know what, let's just see what happens and, you know, continue to keep going and stuff and hopefully gotten a little bit better. But um, well, Ira Glass, uh, the uh, you know, producer of This American Life, uh, I saw him speak live one time and he talked about how uh, in his experience, it took about 300 uh, episodes before he started even getting like a little bit better than like mediocre. Um, it, it, that was, you know, his perspective. So I don't think I'm yet, you know, past that stage, but it takes a lot of repetitions to kind of move on to that level of mastery. But even someone who says, okay, let me just get started and do five, ep five podcast episodes and produce them. You have some sense then of what that whole space is like. And I'd say, you know, more people should try more things 
don't just say, well, I'm never going to become an expert at that. So I'm not even going to get started. Just, you know, do take a figure drawing class, you know, take, learn Tableau, you know, get to be a beginner level of that, you know, learn a little Python, expose yourself to these things. Um, and then those help you get more in a position to bring the right kind of folks together. Yeah. And, and, uh, to put a little bit of context, the podcast you were talking about is your podcast called Unleashed uh, for, for people that um, to learn more about. And, um, and, and so uh, you also mentioned Umbrex. And um, I think it's amazing uh, that, you know, you left McKinsey and then you started to become an independent management consultant. And then you said, you know what, I'm sure there's other people that are going through these same types of questions, these same types of problems. Uh, thinking about the same types of things. And so then eventually you started organizing and gathering people. Um, and then now I've, you know, built an amazing community uh, from that. So uh, kudos to you. Thank you. So, you know, David, you have had Seth Godin as a guest on your show, and he is one of my greatest heroes. Uh, in 2008, when I left McKinsey and was starting my own consulting practice, I read a book by Seth uh, called Tribes, which talks about you know, connecting the folks in your space. So that was really the inspiration for, I said, well, I should do that. And I didn't see anybody else who was connecting independent consultants with one another. And I thought there'd be a lot of value in creating opportunities for independent consultants to you know, meet, build relationships, share lessons learned and collaborate. Uh, so that's, you know, that's how Umbrex has grown. Mm-hmm. And um, have you seen an increase in, in kind of activity around this space in the last call it, year or last six months and stuff around people wanting to become independent management consultants, independent consultants? How, how have you, since you're so kind of knee deep in this space, how have you, what have you noticed about the space? So definitely both on the supply side of people who are, you know, are independent consultants, as well as the demand side of clients who are looking to engage independent consultants. I've seen both the supply and the demand increasing over the last 12 years. Um, I'd say in the last year, since, you know, since COVID started, um, I'd say that's probably accelerated. Um, So we've seen a big increase in demand from clients over the past six to nine months. I think that uh, in the minds of clients, they're thinking, well, if you know the team from McKinsey or Bain or BCG is all effectively going to be working from home, and the independent consultant who's an alum of McKinsey or Bain or BCG is working from home, then why should we pay a two or three hundred percent premium to get the person who's still at the firm as opposed to the person who just left the firm? Um, so there's been a big increase in demand that we're seeing for a while there, like in March and April, a lot of independent consultants were on the beach as probably a lot of consultants at top tier firms, at global firms were as well, as I think a lot of CEOs pulled back and took stock and just said, stop all discretionary spending. Uh, but the second half of the year, we've seen you know, a lot, you know, Many, many consultants have been at a, at a high utilization rate, as I think there's a growing acceptance of, of using independent consultants to get the work done. Mm-hmm. 
And and you hit on a, a really good point that um, so Umbrex kind of matches people on both sides. You have companies coming to Umbrex to say, hey, we we're looking for a team, a person to solve uh, this problem, study this market, um, analyze you know a new business strategy, etc. And then you have consultants that are connecting over you know shared knowledge and stuff, and then you kind of link them up. Um, any any thoughts on kind of what what a minimum body of work looks like to be able to go after some of these contracts to pitch work uh, from a you know a Fortune 500 company? Is there any minimum uh, you know two years work experience or anything like that that gives you enough credibility or enough exposure to be able to win a contract? Sure. So. It certainly depends on the the kind of the skill set that we're talking about or the type of work that we're talking about. Um, so for some for some fields, it's formal work experience is less important than your portfolio, right? So for graphic designers, for they can show their portfolio and it's less it's more important than kind of years of work experience so for a website designer, for a graphic designer. For programmers, uh, that's a little bit further afield from my space, but I think that their you know, portfolio on GitHub or their reputation is more important than you know, where they went to college. Uh, my space is management consulting. And in management consulting, we see demand really at all levels of levels of experience. Typically in the independent world, as, as a management consultant, it's almost impossible to just break in and get an independent consulting assignment with no work experience because consulting really is a craft. It's an apprenticeship craft that's learned. So we do see demand for folks that have say two years of experience as a business analyst pre-MBA. We definitely see demand for people at that level as well as at the associate or senior associate level with one or two years post-MBA and then all the way up people with for five years of experience, they've been an engagement manager, people with six, seven, eight years of experience have been an associate partner or, or more senior. Um, so there's really demand at all levels, but typically in the, if someone is interested in becoming an independent management consultant, it really helps to have that credential of having worked at a global firm, uh, you know, a well-known global brand name firm uh, where you get that training and apprenticeship because it's a tough thing to learn from a book. It's a really interesting point around the apprenticeship side. Hmm. And what about kind of how, how do you think about generalists? And because uh, we also talked about earlier about developing skills and even things that you're bad at, but you know, the ability to learn and the ability to you know add something into your portfolio is easier now than it's been in the past. Uh, but sometimes that can also, you become more and more, you have more and more skills. And and, and one, in some ways you could say you're more and more of a generalist. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, what advice would you say to the generalist that's out there that, you know, is really good at, you know, quickly learning something if they need to, but also has a, sp- uh, a specific kind of area of expertise. How do you kind of see generalists um, in this in this field these days as independent consultants, independent management consultants? Yeah. So it's 
certainly fine to have experience, a wide range of experiences and having worked in different industries and different functions. That's fine. In order to uh, develop business, you do need to get known for something. So a lot of independent management consultants, you know, effectively are generalists. Uh, and when I asked them, hey, just tell me what kind of projects do you typically do? And when should I be thinking about you? If someone tells me, well, let's see, I serve financial services, healthcare, pharma, I serve some consumer packaged goods and I've done some telecom and energy and I do strategy and operations and marketing. And like at some point, the person, it just, the jam is spread so thin, you can't taste it, right? It's completely unmemorable. There's nothing to grasp onto in that. There's no project six months from now where I'm going to say, boom, that's the person I need to call. Like there's no, there's no, nothing to grab your memory. Whereas someone who says, hey, my sole focus is autonomous vehicles. And that's all I do. Anything autonomous vehicles, I'm all over it. Give me a call. Otherwise, it's not, I'm not interested. Now that person, it's specific enough, right? Sven Beikart, I'm going to call him up six months from now because I'll be able to remember that. Oh yeah, who's that autonomous, autonomous vehicle guy? Um, or someone who says, look, I really focus on pharma post-merger integration and I've done six of them. So any pharma post-merger integration projects, give me a call. It's, it's fine, I'd say, in practice to accept projects outside your area of expertise. But when you are pitching yourself or building a reputation, the more specific you are, uh, the better. Now, uh, I've learned a lot about this from David A. Fields, and I strongly recommend his book, uh, The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients. Uh, I've given out 200 copies of this book uh, I, that I like it so much. So, you know, David has a line in there. It talks about creating a fishing line, which is 15 words or less describing what problem you solve and who you solve it for. You don't need to get into how you solve it, just helping people understand, you know, what it is you do. So for example, like I work with supply chain leaders at mid-market PE companies to help them you know, eliminate you know, problems with you know, too much inventory, something like that. Okay, that's memorable. So you wanna pick something that is specific. You also wanna pick something where clients are in fact paying money. Looking for it. You know, for consultants. So I really like David's framework, David, David Fields' framework on this, which is look for problems that are pervasive. So a lot of clients have this problem, number one, pervasive, that are expensive, if not solved, that are urgent. So you need to solve it this month or this year. And only last should you worry about, do I have the skills to solve this problem? Because if you don't have the skills, but you find the problem, you could maybe learn the skills. Don't start with skills as, as the first filter. So pervasive, urgent, expensive, and do I have the skills to solve it? Look for problems that fit those criteria and then get known as the person in the world that solves that problem.
because then it's much easier for when you say what you do for that person to either remember you or to tell their friend six months from now, oh yeah, you should talk to Will Bachman. He's the person who can help you with you know, finding an independent management consultant, right? So you need to get something that's a hook that's specific enough that's memorable. Yeah, and I, I also, one thing that I was just picking up from what you said there is also around, it can just be an industry Right. And you could maybe do multiple projects or you could have more kind of variability. But if it is energy and kind of work on multiple things within the energy sector, you're still kind of known for energy type of work generally. So that, that could be one way to at least still stay somewhat narrow. That's I would I would elaborate on that a little bit, David, by saying that if it's a very specific niche industry, then that the, the more the more niche the industry is, the more true your statement is. So energy is pretty broad, right? I mean, it's everything from oil and gas to nuclear power to distribution, right? If you say, look, you know, I do everything related to like wind power. Okay, so you know the wind power industry really well, you do regulatory ops, marketing strategy, okay, right? But uh, like, or animal health, I, you know, I do all sorts of things within animal health. Okay, you know, that's, that's sort of a bounded space. Um, but to the extent that you can both talk about what industry you serve, but even, even better is to say, here's the specific role that I serve. Like I serve heads of R&D at pharma companies and here's the problem that I solve for them. Um, or I serve you know, CFOs at consumer packaged goods companies and help them with skew rationalization. Um, even though it sounds ridiculous to be so specific, the more specific you are, the more memorable. You can always do other stuff. Like you're not limiting yourself and saying, that's the only thing I'm ever going to do. But the more specific you are, the more memorable. And it goes against the grain because we want to say, oh, yeah, look, I have a big open target. I'll do basically anything. You know, as Seth says, uh, you know, you know, you need anybody and anybody could do it. And I'm anybody, right? And as Seth Godin says, you don't want to be in that position. The more specific you are, then there may be fewer projects that, that are a fit, but the ones that are a fit, you're much more likely to get them. Okay. And, and uh, you mentioned an acronym earlier, and I know you have another amazing acronym. And I think it's a really good kind of next step here. I'd love to talk, to, uh, learn a little bit more about the Clark uh, method. All right, sure. Okay, let's see if I can remember it. Yeah, so Clark, in order to uh, get a call from a client, right? If you're an independent professional, in order to get a call, you have to meet Clark. That's C-L-A-R-C, Clark, All right? So the first one is you have to be contactable. That's a little bit of a, I had to shove to fit that one in, but contactable. The person, the client has to have your contact information, be able to find you, right? So some people really frustrate me with this. They don't put their phone number in their email signature. You can't call them up. Like maybe you have their email. So if you want to be contacted, be contactable. Be on LinkedIn, on your alumni sites for college or business school or other firms you worked with. Make sure your contact information is current in your email signature, include your contact info, uh, maybe make yourself like your, your profile LinkedIn open, whatever. So be contactable. The next is likable. I mean, you have to be likable enough. I'm not that likable, but you have to be at least someone that someone is going to, you know, 
want to do business with. Business is not necessarily about finding the smartest person in the world to do the work. I mean, people want to do business with people that are at least likable, right? That you know you can get along with, that aren't a jerk. So you have to be likable enough. And then A is available. So the person has to know not necessarily that you're oh you're available here on you know February the third, right, to do a new project. That's when your current project ends or something. But they have to know in general that you are an independent consultant and you're available for projects. So if your LinkedIn profile still says that you're a vice president at IBM or that you're a director at Pfizer or something, you haven't updated your LinkedIn and it looks like you're fully employed, well, guess what? Someone who checks your profile is going to say, oh, well, you know, I guess they're not available for independent consulting projects. Whereas if you've updated your LinkedIn and made people aware that in general, you're available for projects, you're likely to get the call. And then R is reliable. So it's great to be super smart and to know all something, but if you don't deliver what you say you're gonna deliver, people aren't gonna hire you, right? And then C is credible. So R is reliable. That means that you in the past have done what you said you were gonna do. And then C is credible. That is evidence that you have some experience and knowledge in the space. So one way to demonstrate that is just where you've worked, but to the extent that you can create content like you're doing, David, you know, have a podcast, white papers, post on LinkedIn, write a book, write an article, um, do some YouTube videos, create content on your topic of expertise to establish your credibility, uh, that, that helps. So C-L-A-R-C, Clark, in order to get a call, that's just, that's not necessarily going to get you the project. But those conditions have to be satisfied for you to even have an at bat. Mm -hmm. And then once you get the call, I know you've also talked a lot about how to kind of develop context to understand what's truly going on so that therefore you're and this is a little bit of a sweeping generalization, but you know, after you start having a call and you're learning about a project, it's you really need to start to develop context to the problem. Mm -hmm. and you know urgency as we kind of talked about too and then what they're actually kind of really looking for as well so um yeah you've got a um got to develop context to be able to then deliver a proposal uh to you know pitch work so to speak yeah so david fields has a chapter in his book two chapters in fact on what he has called the context discussion right so before you can submit a proposal on a project you need to have a context discussion where you understand what it's about. In my experience, most consultants or independent consultants or frankly, uh, consultants of big firms spend too much time talking when they're in that initial discussion with a client and not enough time listening where they're trying to sell their experience and all the great stuff they've done in the past and they're not actually understanding what's going on. So, I have this rule 70, 30 squared in a first conversation with a client, you should spend 70% of the time, the client should be talking 30% of the time, words should be coming out of your mouth. And out of the 30% coming out of your mouth, 70% of that should be questions. And only 30% of that 30% should you be talking about your background? Because frankly, clients do not care about your background and about the great stuff that you've done in the past. That is enough to get you in the room. But once you're in the room, 
they really don't care. What they care about is their problem. So ask them about their problem. So you want to understand the context of the situation. David's book walks through the whole details on it, but basically you want to ask, what's the situation, all right? Why are you talking to me about this now? What prompted this? You know, did you get a new CEO? Did the board ask for this? Do you have some gap that you're trying to close in the numbers? Was there some thing that just failed and everybody's up in arms? Like what prompted our discussion today? What are your objectives on this? So it's, you know, some, sometimes projects like arise, but there's no clear business objective. If you can't get to a clear business objective from the conversation, then it may be difficult to sell the work, right? So what's the business objective? Help get the person to understand that. Even trying to get to the point where you quantify the business value. So you're saying, okay, you want to increase customer satisfaction uh, with the call center. All right. If we did that, if we increased it from you know, X to Y, from 70% to 90%, what do you think would be the increase in percentage of people becoming returning customers from X to Y? Okay. How many customers do you have? Okay. What's an increased return worth? Okay. $15. All right. So you do all the math and you say, okay, so if we go from 70% to 90% customer satisfaction, we've now put a dollar value on that. That's worth $17 million. Okay, great. Now we're talking. So you understand the business value, the objectives, the context, you understand the stakeholders. So who has a point of view on this? And then you want to get into the parameters of the project. So uh, are we focusing just on the US or is this global? Is this US and Europe? When are you thinking about starting? Are there any key dates? Is there a big board meeting or is a big, you know, something happening that we have to have this done by? You want to understand who's going to be involved in it. Uh, and what I like to ask is a lot of times consultants will say, okay, well, here's what we recommend for a team, right? I don't like to do that. Uh, I mean, it's okay if, if they insist on, on telling, but I like to say, okay, you know, David, if I was talking to you, David, look, there's a number of different ways we could do this. What's your mental model of what the team model look like, right? I just asked the client, <laughs> David, what's your mental model of, you know, how long this ought to take and how are you thinking that, you know, what would be the stages that we would go through? Like, what's, what do you think kind of data sources you would expect we would use? I mean, I just asked the client what they want us to do. Um, and sometimes they have no clue. Sometimes they say, hey, we really have no idea. We've never done this before. I need your help on this. Sometimes they'll say, well, I expect this to be a 12-week project and the first two weeks would be an operational diagnostic where we're going to look at X, Y, Z and you'll come back to me in two weeks and then we'll do a future state design and then we'll approve that and then we'll go into implementation and you'll lead five Kaizen events, blah, blah, blah. All right, fantastic. Okay, and then when I write my statement of work, I just write down exactly what they told me to do. <laughs> you know, Why not give the client what they want? It's much easier, i found, to sell work that the client wants rather than selling them something else that they don't want. So I try to give people what they want. Um, so that's why it's important to understand context because 90% of the time, if I join a call or another, it were, it, maybe not 90%, but many, often, often when I'm on a call with a consultant doing one of these discussions, they jump too quickly to proposing their own solutions or talking about their experience or assuming that they know what the problem is when we haven't really heard the client tell us and the clients are eager to tell us. If you can get real work done on that call, you're far more likely to win the project. So let the client talk and uh, ask them a few questions. Amazing. 
Um, well, this has been an incredible conversation on pretty much how anybody could become an independent management consultant, independent consultant, kind of from, not from scratch, but a ton of incredible insights, tactics, and resources they've shared here, Will. I'd love to hear, tell people about your course, uh, which I know you spent a, a ton of time working on that. Um, but if there's anything else that kind of jumps out that you think that we missed, uh, please let listeners know, but also please let listeners know about your course and how else they can learn more about your incredible work. Well, thank you for that invitation, David. So I did put together a course with 90 videos and it also has a ton of tools and templates you can download on how to set up your own consulting practice. Uh, you can find that course if you go to umbrex.com, that's U-M-B-R-E-X.com, and just look for the link on setting up your own consulting practice. There's downloads that include you know, contract templates, invoice templates, proposal templates. It's everything that you need out of the box to get your firm set up. These are lessons that took me over 10 years to learn. And I've tried to boil it down and put together what I wish that I had had when I started my own practice 12 years ago. Um, so I point folks to that. And then uh, as you kindly mentioned, I, I also have a show, uh, Unleashed. Uh, if you go to umbrex.com, you can find the Unleashed tab. Uh, if you're interested, uh, I send out a weekly email that summarizes the most recent episodes and uh, occasionally have some bonus material. So. I don't necessarily encourage anybody to listen to all the episodes, but if you get signed up for that email, you can kind of see what's new and maybe one of them will, will catch your attention. And then, uh, oh yeah, and then one final thing is for folks that are listening that are independent consultants, we, we're, we're happy to invite them to join our community. So you can, um, you can go to umbrex.com and just click the, the uh, request to join link and then we'll get your information and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, We'll send you an application to join. Amazing. Very generous of you. Thank you so much, Will. David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for your great questions. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, friend. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. would love to hear what you learned and what you enjoyed. Um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever is best for you. And as a reminder, I'm just one email away as well. This episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which includes the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.